I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is How Story Works. So we've covered act structure, the anchor scenes that nail down act structure, and seen an example in Disney's 2010 Rapunzel movie, Tangled. Now we're on to our second example, 1992's A Few Good Men. Remember, we're just looking at story structure right now. There are some fantastic discussions to be had about A Few Good Men, and we will get to them when we get to advanced story criticism. But right now, we're just focusing on the movement of the central narrative conflict and the anchor scenes that progress us through our act structure. So let's start with the central narrative conflict. First, we need to identify our protagonist. And once we've seen the whole movie, I think we'd all probably choose Daniel Caffey as our protagonist, and we'd be right. But if you didn't pick Caffey, if, for example, you picked Demi Moore's character, Commander Joanne Galloway, you'd have some textual argument to back you up in that choice. So let's revisit for a moment the three qualities that define our protagonist. One, he is our POV or point of view character, right? So we're seeing the events of the movie through his perspective. Two, he has an active goal, and his pursuit of that goal provides the motive force for the story. And three, he has the most at stake if he loses. If you look at the bulk of the story, you can see that while not everything is perfectly in Caffey's corner, the preponderance of evidence lands on his side. Once we get to Kathy, and we'll talk about that delay in just a minute, we stay with him. We see things from his perspective. Joe is uptight, but smart and capable. Sam is funny and sidekicky, but not as good as Kathy. Now, if we're seeing the story from Joe's perspective, Kathy would be arrogant, flippant, and incompetent, and Sam would be judgy and no fun at all. And if we're seeing the movie from Sam's perspective, Joe would be naive and incompetent, and Kathy would be the dim but charming pretty boy, while Sam was the hero who knew that Dawson and Downey were wrong from the beginning. Perspective can be a lot easier to nail down in novels. We're reading the text that tells us whose head we're in at any given moment. In movies, perspective can be a little harder to figure out. Movies feel like an objective reality presented to us as we actually watch. It feels like the story isn't being filtered through any particular experience, but that's typically not the case. The story is almost always colored by the perspective of our protagonist. So wait, some of you are thinking, what about the scenes that don't have Kathy in them? How is an event Kathy isn't present for filtered through his experience? It's a good question. Remember in How Story Works Episode 6, Protagonist-Antagonist, we talked about scene-level protagonists. Those scenes are filtered through the perspective of whoever owns that scene. In the case of the Jessup scenes in A Few Good Men, that's Jessup. Every scene is owned by someone in that scene. We are seeing the events in that scene through one person's particular perspective. So how can you tell whose perspective the scene is filtered through? Well, who are we with? If a scene opens with Daniel Caffey alone in his apartment and then Joe walks in, we're in Caffey's perspective because we've been with him from the beginning. If the scene starts outside the door with Joe knocking and then we follow her into the apartment, our scene-level protagonist is Joe. The bulk of the scenes in A Few Good Men are in Kathy's perspective, except the most vital scenes, the opening scenes. The reader, and when I say reader, I'm not talking about book readers, I'm talking about story readers, which is any person who engages with a story in any form and processes it. So that includes television viewers and movie viewers and video game players. They are all readers. 
Anyway, the reader rides through the story on the back of the protagonist, and so it is very important that you start with your protagonist, or the reader will attach to the first likely candidate for protagonist that they see, and then if you switch protagonists in midstream, it can be a bumpy transition. So who is our likely candidate for protagonist from the beginning? Joe. First, she wants something. She wants this case. She wants it desperately. She's nervous. We are deep in her POV when we sit with her while she awkwardly practices her argument. And that awkwardness, that obviously strong desire to take this case, that's an active goal, baby. And that's vulnerability. Caring deeply about anything is instant vulnerability. And caring deeply about something that you're not sure you can handle, that's even more vulnerability. Plus, she walks into this room of men and is instantly disrespected. That's underdog vulnerability in addition to everything else. But Joanne Galloway is serious business, y'all. She's a commander in the United States Navy, a lawyer, and smart as a whip. So that gives us strengths, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities. We will talk more about Joanne Galloway when we get to character, I promise you. And at this point in the movie, I love Joe. I'm with Joe. I want her for my protagonist. She is my spirit animal. Nevertheless, she persisted. She is awesome. Plus, she has a great deal to lose if she gets this case and borks it. She's fighting for their respect as it is. If they give her a chance and she screws it up, she loses ground with all of them. She just confirms their patriarchal bullshit and reinforces the glass ceiling that she and her sisters in arms are constantly pressed up against. So here's Joe, and she's a perfect protagonist. But then they give the case and the movie to Kathy. He doesn't want it. He doesn't care. He's too cool for school. He's pretty. He's charming. Blech. He has no vulnerabilities. He has no passion. And when Joe dresses him down in their first meeting, fast food, slick ass, Persian bazaar manner, indeed, Miss Galloway, I am on her side. I want her on this case. Tom Cruise can take his clever pretty boy snake oil and sell it somewhere else. I'm not interested. So what I'm saying here is, Kathy is the protagonist, but anyone who picked Joe has my sympathies. I love Aaron Sorkin as much as the next girl, but he has problems writing women, and his switch midstream from a wonderful potential protagonist like Joanne Galloway to a flat pancake like Kathy is a real disappointment. That said, Kathy isn't a flat pancake for the whole movie. Sorkin writes the ship bit by bit eventually, but I will always have a pang in my soul for the story that we didn't get, the story of Commander Joe Ann Galloway getting in Colonel Nathan Jessup's face and demanding the truth. But like it or not, Kathy is our protagonist. What's his goal? Well, it evolves and that's okay. Kathy's goal is eventually to prove that a code red was ordered, thus proving his argument that Dawson and Downey are not guilty. Jessup's goal is to cover up the code red and to get Dawson and Downey to take the fall for their unit, core, god, and country. Now we take a moment for a mutual exclusivity check. Can Kathy prove a code red was ordered while Jessup hides the code red? No. Check. We're good to move on to the seven anchor scenes. We start with the inciting incident, and if you had trouble finding it, you are not alone. We spend so much time in the opening doing the protagonist dance and trying to get our story off the ground that there are two candidates for inciting incident, the moment Kathy gets the assignment and the moment he asks Jessup for Santiago's transfer order. 
The problem with the assignment scene being the inciting incident is that Kathy's goal in the beginning is to plead out, which is exactly what Jessup wants. So in this moment, and for a while, in fact, you could make a textually supported argument that Kathy and Jessup aren't in actual conflict until Kathy asks for the copy of Santiago's transfer order when they're in Guantanamo Bay. But this moment, face-to-face with Jessup and asking for the order, is 45 minutes into the movie, and if the conflict wasn't launched until now, we probably would have all gotten up out of the theater and left, no matter how good Sorkin's dialogue is. I mean, there's Moneyball, people. So it's a weak inciting incident, but I'm going to argue for Kathy getting the assignment as the inciting incident, and my argument rests on Joe. Behind every Tom Cruise character that is weak, waffling, and carrying daddy issues in place of actual vulnerability, there's usually a great female character who got stuck lashed to his side in a narrative three-legged race who drags him along and provides the actual motivation while Cruise flashes his big white shiny smile and quips. Because Joanne Galloway has her eyes on the prize, because she is pushing Kathy forward, because she is his superior officer and has the power to force him to do things he doesn't want to do, the inciting incident functions narratively. It's duct taped together and Commander Galloway is doing all the heavy lifting while dragging Kathy's dead weight through the beginning of the story, but it works. And that leads us to the first act turn, the act of choice that Kathy makes to engage with the conflict. This is when he asks for the transfer order. This is the moment that Commander Galloway and the rest of us can finally take a breath because we won't have to drag Kathy along anymore. Finally, after following the trail of narrative Reese's pieces in order to get his interest up, Kathy's on the road to becoming a full protagonist. So we move now into Act 2, and Kathy's starting to act a little bit like a real lawyer until he gets the offer from Ross, a plea deal. The clients are out in six months. Now remember, Kathy was all set to take 12 years in the beginning. Six months is a gift. You ever hear the phrase, be careful what you wish for? Of course you have. Giving a character exactly what they want at the midpoint only to make it impossible for them to take it is a great way of flipping your conflict on its head and recontextualizing it for your protagonist. Remember, if this was easy, if the protagonist could just stay in their comfort zone and do their thing the way they've always done it, we wouldn't have a story. Dangling Kathy's dream plea deal in front of him and then having the client refuse, making it impossible for Kathy to take, it's beautiful. And then Kathy gives up because he's a crappy protagonist. Until we get to our act two turning point, no way out but through. Kathy goes into the courtroom and instead of recusing himself, he pleads not guilty and engages with the conflict again. At this point, he knows that he didn't get this case because he is awesome, but because he's weak, because he pleads out and because they have something they want to bury. He chooses the hard road deliberately and on his own, no Reese's Pieces. He's almost a real boy now. One thing you may have noticed is that here we are turning into our third act and we're only halfway through the movie. If that seems a bit strange to you in regard to pacing, you're right. I'll talk about this in more detail when we get to our episode on pacing after we wrap up the anchor scene discussions, but there is a slight pacing aberration in trial movies, and by trial I mean anything where there's a tournament or a battle in the third act, which gives us slightly abbreviated first and second acts, and then slightly elongated third acts. It works because of all the steps involved in the third act trial moving through the steps in a legal process, moving through the brackets in a sports tournament, or moving through battles in a war movie. This is perfectly legit and just one of the many ways in which you will see structure vary and yet still function.
So we move into the third act. Our team is working hard and moving through the investigation in the days of the trial. And finally, we hit our dark moment when all is lost. This is the scene where, after Joe messed up in court and Markinson committed suicide, Kathy gets drunk and gives up. Again. And let me just say, this doesn't have anything to do with structure, but Joe is awesome in this scene. We get up, we dust ourselves off, and we run at it again. While Kathy is wallowing in self-pity, she is pushing up her sleeves and getting it done. She wants to subpoena Colonel Nathan Jessup, the man who tried to intimidate her with sexual insults, the man who eats breakfast 80 yards away from 4,000 Cubans trained to kill him. She just screwed up and got punched in the gut, and she wants to keep swinging. Guys, when we get to character, we're going to talk about Commander Joanne Galloway. So we've got the dark moment when all is lost and our protagonist throws a hissy fit and indulges himself and bores us with his daddy issues. And then Sam gives him an encouraging speech and seriously, Kathy sucks as a protagonist, y'all. But because we've got Sam and Joe holding him up on either side, he picks himself up finally and moves forward, calling Colonel Nathan Jessup to the stand. At this point, we finally have an actual protagonist. He has a clear goal and he's actively in pursuit of that goal. We're seeing things from his POV, which is the only checkbox he has cleared from the beginning. And finally, with the threat of a court martial over his head if this doesn't work, Kathy has the most at stake. He's a real boy now, and it only took almost the whole movie to get there. A little courtroom theater later, and we get to the big moment, our climax, when the conflict is resolved and we have a winner and a loser. Jessup admits to ordering the code red. Then we move into our resolution scenes, and I have to say, I really like how complicated these scenes are. The resolution shows us how our conflict has changed the world, and hence what the story means. In the end, Kathy's okay. He made an argument, became a real trial lawyer, and won the case for his clients. But Dawson and Downey, while cleared of murder charges, still received a dishonorable discharge from the Marines, which may not seem like much to us, but we know exactly what it means to them. They followed orders. They did what military people are supposed to do. But those orders were wrong, and they were wrong for carrying them out. It would have been an easier and flatter ending to let them off completely free, able to go back and serve their country again. But instead, we are challenged to ask the question, and we see that consequences for bad actions must be paid, even when the argument can be made that we're punishing the hammer along with the guy who swung it. It's crunchy stuff. It's not easy or pat. And this is why Sorkin, with all of his problems, is serious business. And every writer out there should study everything the man has ever written. Except Moneyball. You can skip that one. Okay, that's it for today. If you have questions about how story works, call 302-643-CHIP. That's 302-643-2447 and leave a message. Or you can email me at Lonnie at chipperish.com or contact me on Twitter at Lonnie Diane Rich or at Chipperish with the hashtag HowStoryWorks. How Story Works is a free college-level course in narrative theory and is entirely supported by listener donations. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep it in production and gain access to exclusive chipperish content and a community of amazing smart people. That's a hell of a bargain. Visit patreon.com chipperish for more information. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye.